Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio. At this time of the night, we normally have an interview that I know very little about because Jane does that on purpose. She doesn't tell me much about our guests. And the reason she does that is so as I'm as surprised and as shocked or as inspired as you might be. So I get handed a script that says, we regularly hear inspiring stories at this time of the night. And tonight's no exception. Nina Walk is a life coach who is widely recognised for her activism against gender-based violence. Nina's story involves homelessness, life-threatening incidents, and an abuse of arranged marriage, and is both harrowing and truly inspiring. Her advocacy has been acknowledged on prestigious platforms such as TEDx, Great Britain News, uh, NBC News, Lad Bible, Unfiltered Stories, New York Weekly, CEO Magazine, amongst many other things. And she joins me on the air to talk about her experience. Nina, good, av- or good evening to you. How are you? Hi, Niall. Good. <laughs> Nina, good, I was so concerned about not pronouncing your name right that I actually got Jane and to I, ask. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> skip past it. It's not an easy one. So don't, don't be too worried. Not, not many people get it right. Even I struggle sometimes. So, so can you pronounce right. it? Can you pronounce it for me so I don't get it wrong again? It's oh, well, Yeah, sure. It? <laughs> it's actually pronounced Nina Alt. Alk. 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 Nothing like it's spelled, but it's for every vowel except the E. I can, uh, I can see that. It's a, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Nina, you have yeah. had, I'm, I was reading through the notes there a few minutes ago, mm. and I can't imagine what your life, nobody could imagine what your life was like. So let's take us back a little bit in time. Um, and as part of your religion, um, or as part of their religion, um, you were kind of subjected to an arranged marriage. I think that's where it already started at 16 years of age. I mean, tell us a little bit about that feeling and what that must have been like to be told this is the person you're going to marry. And did, do you get to see them beforehand? Do you know, did you know who he was? Yeah, it's not religion at all. I need to make that really clear. Okay. Um, it's cultural. So it's a cultural thing that's imposed upon young girls. Um, and actually today is day three of 16 Days of Activism Against Gender-Based Violence. And forced marriages comes into that as well. So I will raise that. Where, yeah. um, a lot of activists around the world, including the UN, are um, you know making notes on, well, raising awareness of different types of abuse that women and girls face. Mm-hmm. Now, in my culture, as I said, um, totally not nothing to do with the religion. Girls are forced into marriage at a young age. Often back then, you know, I'm born in the 70s. So back then, it was girls were sort of forced into marriage somebody they had never seen normally from the age of sort of 15 upwards um but nowadays it's older nowadays they're allowed to see the picture of the person and sometimes they're allowed to even date the person in this country but even in this country a lot of girls don't get to choose who they marry um they don't get to see who they marry they don't get to have a conversation i run a non-profit and our non-profit has had a huge amount of girls since February when I started speaking out about this and um, coming forward saying that they're forced to get married. They mar- Some of them are marrying cousins, not necessarily from the same culture as mine, but from cultures sim- similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and one incident is a girl that was 15, you know, we helped her to escape that forced arranged marriage by allowing her to get away, you know, to escape. But in my particular case, no, I didn't know him, but it's a little bit more um, complicated than that. You know, my marriage came out of um, something that happened before within the family. So it was almost a cover-up of something. It was a sham wedding. It wasn't a real wedding. Okay. 
but it is it is a common occurrence within my culture. So in this culture, obviously, the two families, the parents, obviously, of both families, mm. agree. They make an agreement and say, right, your daughter will marry our son. And, and they meet up and they agree on it. And then you're usually the last to find out about it. And you were literally a child. You were 16 years of age. Uh, yeah, actually, I was 15 when it... Well, I was 15 when the decision was made. Made, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was almost traded because that's how it works. And it still does in many different countries because it doesn't just happen in my culture, like I said. I mean, my parents, my heritage is Indian. Mm-hmm. I'm born and raised in the United Kingdom and all of this happened in the United Kingdom. Is it? But that's not legal but, in the United Kingdom, is it? Well, it's now the age has been raised to 18, but then somebody could easily go to Scotland and get their daughter married there because the age is different there. I know I it's illegal in Ireland. Arranged marriages, yeah. you know, or those marriages are illegal then in then how would you know, Niall? How would you yeah. know somebody is having an arranged marriage? I mean, the girls are normally so scared they wouldn't... If somebody was to say, are you having a forced arranged marriage, they would say no. You know, mm. it takes a very desperate child uh, or a brave child to sort of ask for yeah. help. It's not easy asking for help, is it? Can I, can I ask you, when you found out, you know, at 15 years of age, when you're told... You know, listen, we've got somebody for you to marry, and, and that's kind of it. And, you know, you've no choice in the matter, really. What's that feeling like? Or are you part of the. Is there. I don't want to say this wrong, but if you're a girl in that culture, is that something that you expect in life and you're told earlier on in your life, this is the way it works, this is the way it happens, and you just kind of go with the flow? Or does that come as a complete shock to you and you're terrified? Well, when you're a girl in my culture, um, I won't say everybody is the same because, you know, I've, I love Ireland. I've been to Ireland. My TEDx is in Ireland, actually, and I think I've traveled around most of Northern Ireland and Ireland itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the culture in Ireland is very similar to my own in the sense that it's a very tight-knit community. It matters what the neighbors say. You do things to please your parents, even though sometimes you don't want to. And you'll stay in a marriage because of that's how you've been taught to do things. And in my culture, girls are not respected or wanted. They're not a desirable child to have. So most Asian, South Asian parents will want a baby boy. And when boys are born, sweets are handed out. Celebrations, you know, are Mm -hmm. in in full swing. They have parties, they they dance. But when a girl is born, even now so, um, it's a very solemn affair where girls are just not really wanted. So that child from birth has this feeling imposed upon them because the energy around them is so low that they're not wanted. So you were so almost like they, an inconvenience. Completely, yeah. completely. Uh, and that that followed me through life. You know, I was this mm. person that was in the way, not wanted, the black sheep of the farm, people that, you know, I, I always thought people were looking down upon me. Yeah. And they were, if I'm being honest, because there is a... Um, a gender-based discrimination and a gender-based violence. We, we see that we expected. see that in many cultures in the world. You know, yes, where women, exactly. you know, are essentially second-class citizens. Um, yeah. and, and it is despicable to see women being treated like that in any culture. I think we we think it we is. should move past that in, at this stage in this planet, but we haven't, unfortunately. But So getting to the marriage itself, on the day of the wedding, do you, I'm, I'm assuming you do remember the day of the wedding, I mean, and you and you get. To, did you get to meet the, the chap beforehand, even, or talk to him, or find out who he was, or well, you would have found out who he was, but you, do you get to talk to him or even see him beforehand? In a conventional forced arranged marriage, no, you wouldn't. Okay. Um, my particular case was very different. You see, my case was 
something a little bit more um, dark in the sense that my parents had, had traded me to somebody where I would be treated as a sex slave for the father-in-law and I was actually entering not, as I said, a conventional marriage. It was a marriage of convenience for my parents to keep a secret quiet. Um, so I was traded for that purpose. So as soon as I entered the home, I knew that I was there for two reasons, to keep my father-in-law and mother-in-law happy in their own individual rights. Mm-hmm. And it was nothing to do with my actual partner that I was marrying. He had an extra marriage, well, he had an affair with somebody who was seeing somebody um, from, I think, quite a few years. So she was not from our culture. So his parents were trying to cover that up, but my parents were also trying to cover up the abuse that was happening within my mm. home upon me. I was That was inflicted upon me. So yeah. it was all a very um, difficult situation for a 15, 16-year-old girl to enter. And I remember waiting for them to come and collect me after the marriage ceremony because I was sent home. And, you know, I was not in a good place. Um, I didn't want to leave because I wanted to stay in my parents' home because that's what I knew. I was very You're a child. I I can't imagine what that would be like. You're a child who still wants the love of her parents and wants the safety of her own home that you've been raised in. So to be just taken away from that into a stranger's home, you know, it just just denies belief. You know, it's it's so difficult to understand. I've been through... Well, I'd been through a lot of physical, mental and sexual abuse, which had led to that point. Mm. So for me, it was it was a very anxious position to be in, whereby I didn't know what was coming next. And that was making me feel very insecure and unsafe. And I think most children, they want to feel secure. You look at your parents mm. and the adults in your life to keep you safe and you they guide you. And where the, when they're the ones that are hurting you, you don't know where to turn. I felt very alone. You know, I felt extremely alone and very worried about what was coming next. I was very anxious mm. all the time. And when I was waiting, I contemplated, you know, maybe I could do something so that I wouldn't have to go. But I really didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I, running away wasn't an option. I was going to say, was that an option even to run away? No, it wasn't. No, calling the police, running away, these are not options. Because I remember I remember speaking my... to a girl, sorry for interrupting, in, in a similar situation to yourself, but not in an arranged marriage, but she'd been physically and sexually tortured uh, throughout her young life. And she'd said to me she got to a point at 16 or 17 years of age where it became normal. And she felt worthless. And she felt, she said, I actually felt at one point that was my purpose in life. Uh, you know, to be there for other people to abuse, physical abuse. She said, that's how bad I felt about myself. And Yeah, you do. You, you begin to hate who you are, mm. you know, but you can't help that. Mm. And when I look at parts of your story, you know, that your father-in-law, and indeed your mother-in-law, she denied you food. Your father-in-law, you claim that your father-in-law tied you up with a metal coat hanger whilst naked. I mean, I you weren't even allowed to use the bathroom. I can't imagine human beings doing that to one another. It's just intolerable. I don't think we're, don't think we're supposed to understand because we're not those people, you know. And I mm. say the world's not. I think I think the world is lacking compassion, um, especially now. People are becoming very, you know, very sort of withdrawn, and they don't want to get involved with things. But regarding my my father-in-law, he was a man who really craved control. And he seemed to get a kick out of controlling me. And the whole episode of tying me up with a coat hanger was that he would... And there were really strong coat hangers back in the 80s, 90s. Yeah, you know, they were, I know the they ones, were really yeah. strong. 
Yeah. Um, and you would actually straighten it and then tie it around my ankles to the point where the edges were so jagged they would dig into my skin if I moved. And and the purpose of that was for me to stay in one place because they would go out for the day. And I couldn't I couldn't get up, I couldn't walk, I couldn't make it to the bathroom, so I saw myself where I was. And I think they had this fear that I might ring for help, but there was really nobody for me to call. There was nobody that I could think of that would even come to help me. And I was so scared I wouldn't even cry for the fear of my, you know, the tracks of my tears, as they say, being seen by them. So I would sit and just literally hold my breath at times thinking, well, what do I do? When are they coming? I mean, when when you say that his his wife, the mother-in-law, would also deny you food, mm-hmm. as a woman, did she not even look at you when she's seen how you were being controlled uh, by her own husband, did she not look at you at some level of empathy or understanding as a woman? I think there's that joke of the mother-in-law, isn't there? But Mm. I think South Asian in-laws take it to a different extreme. They're quite aggressive. And a lot of people question why my own mother didn't step in or why my mother-in-law didn't have that empathy or that love or that compassion. Mm -hmm. But I think with both of them, there's an element of jealousy and hatred towards me. Why? I can't explain because I'm not them. But I know that they had certain similar characteristics when they would address me um, and they were very aggressive in their nature towards me but not anybody else in the house. So I can only imagine that it was something that they felt that I was that person that should receive that treatment that shouldn't be spoken to with respect, that shouldn't be treated well. And incidentally, in both situations, I was that servant in the house. So whether mentally they saw me as just a servant, detaching away from who I actually was as a person, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And how did you eventually, uh, and I don't want to fast forward too much because your story is really important, uh, and I would love to speak to you for a lot longer, but how did you fast forward to get away from that situation? Or how did you get away from that situation? I got to a point where I decided I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and it takes a lot to decide to mm. step out of a difficult situation, whoever you are. But I had had enough of the way my father-in-law made me feel because he was sexually abusing me. I'd had enough of the humiliation that my mother-in-law was putting me through. And I had no money. You know, they were taking everything from me. I had nothing really to call of my own. The room that they had me sleeping in was this tiny little box. It was like a little makeshift cupboard downstairs. And they all slept upstairs. And I was very much um, I was very much alone, but also alone in my thoughts, which gave me time to think about where I wanted to be. And I knew I didn't want to be there, but I wasn't sure where to go. And somebody at work had said to me to go back to my parents, which is where I ended up going. Mm-hmm. And did your parents welcome you back? Well, that was what I was hoping for. You know, I romanticise, and I still do romanticise everything, but, um, you know, when you're a bit of a daydreamer, things don't always work out the way okay. that you think. And they certainly didn't back then because my father and my eldest brother, because I've got two brothers, um, physically assaulted me. They beat me. And it was the start of an attempted honour killing which um, in which they broke my arm and my jaw um, and as I describe in my podcast, there's a lot of them out there if anybody wants to hear them, but 
when I fell to the ground, my father and brother stomped on me and stamped and kicked me um, to the point where I was barely hanging on to life, you know. And I think in that pain, I actually found no reason to live. I didn't myself want to live because of the things they were saying about me and how I'd let them down because in our culture, you're supposed to stay in a marriage regardless of what happens. Um, not understanding how I was actually feeling or having no compassion. But again, my mother and sister-in-law were watching this all happen and no one was able to reach out to sort of stop them or to say to, me, say to them, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were eventually stopped from beating me, my, it was by my other brother. And the only reason it was stopped was because he'd given them a solution, which was we shouldn't kill her here. We should kill her in India because if we take her away, it's less likely that we'll be caught for the crime. I mean, your podcast, by the way, in case people are interested, is called End Honor Killings. And I know that so many people, there's been a global response to that podcast with over 14,000 messages from distressed women and girls seeking your help, who I assume have been in the same situation. I know you yourself were honoured as a woman of the year, 2023, in the House of Commons in London. Well done, by the way. Congratulations. And you're an extremely brave woman to come out and talk about it. But you've kind of righted the wrong now. When I say righted the wrong, you now try to help other people who have been in a similar situation. And is this still happening as much in the UK? And is it happening in Ireland, do you think? Oh, Ireland's terrible for human trafficking. That's the other thing I um, work with. My podcast isn't called End Honor Killings. That's my non-profit. Mm. If anybody needs any Oh, sorry, help I do apologise. No, no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, Ireland's rife for domestic violence. You see, I, my non-profit helps anybody that's going through any gender-based violence or abuse basically um we specialize in honor-based killings because i've been through but again i've been through forms of modern day slavery um and my sister was sold to traffickers by our father when she was six years old so i work within the human trafficking awareness organizations too and i and i support victims myself ireland is a hub especially dublin for trafficking Mm -hmm. we had a call from a very young girl who had escaped from her um, traffickers and called us because she was standing near a dustbin. And she said, um, she was explaining everything and we barely could understand her, but we didn't get there on time, unfortunately. By the time somebody I trust who lives in Malahide got there, she'd moved and we couldn't we couldn't find her anymore. Okay. Um, we've, we've, heard, we've heard that recently, by the way. We, we spoke to Mac, Macbeth there recently. And they were tethered an organisation who uh, try, are trying to end human trafficking. And they told us about girls, particularly teenage young girls, who were in custody of the state. Uh, in other words, they were ward of the state um, in Tusla. And they have no way of stopping them, seemingly, from what we're told. And these girls are picked up by gangs of men on a regular basis, brought to hotels and exchanged gifts, obviously, for sex or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and they're young girls, they're teenage girls. Uh, and they have nobody to guide them. They have no role models. And unfortunately, they're in state care, but yet they're still being picked up and brought away to, you know, perform acts or do whatever it is that these men want them to do. They're usually groups of men that are known to the Garda Shikana, but unfortunately, it's very difficult to catch them doing something illegal. And th- that's a huge problem. And it is shocking to listen to the story from Macbeth. But when you say, is there anything that we can do or what can we do to... to make this better or to help or to stop this from happening or how do you recognize this i mean the first thing i would say to anybody when they say what could i do is i would say compassion and i've used that word a few times today because when you're 
show a little bit of compassion, you would encourage someone to tell you what's going on really in their lives because it's scary. It's mm. scary to say to somebody, I need help. Mm. It's very, very difficult to ask for help. Um, a lot of people don't understand why a survivor stays or why a victim rather stays with somebody that's hurting them for so long or stays in a forced arranged marriage or stays within a culture that's almost, you know, taking away, suffocating them. But they stay because they don't know anything any different. They don't know where to go. They don't know who to ask for help. Now, I'm hoping that nonprofits like my own give those people a little bit of hope and a glimmer of of a way of how they can find their own light, you know, because they're sitting literally behind a closed door in the dark. And like my post today on my Instagram, I actually said that whilst you read this first line, somebody's died of an honour killing, which is true, mm-hmm. because girls are being killed not just in England or Ireland, they're being killed all around the world. This problem won't go away if I was to move all of the South Asians back to South Asia. It will still exist in South Asia. Mm-hmm. It's just a, um, a mentality they have. But what people can do, if maybe you're in the educational system, you can look out for girls when they become slightly less conversational, when they start to withdraw. There's always an issue with children when they stop talking. You know, children love to talk. Yeah. Um, but when you maybe notice something where the girl is going on holiday and she's not returning very often or the parents are telling you, that she's going to move to a different country to stay with her family, that's normally a very bad sign. And it normally happens to girls between sort of age of 13 and 16. They're taken away. Um, you can't even comprehend again, that, you know, because I, rem- I remember when my daughter, who's now in her 20s, but I remember when she was 13. And I couldn't, you couldn't comprehend. When, when she was 13, I was concerned that even a boy fancied her. Do you, do you know what I mean? I couldn't comprehend yeah. the idea that somebody would want to be arranging to get her married off in the next couple of years. That just yeah. doesn't, doesn't come into most people's comprehension, does it? Well, the saddest thing is as well that girls can go to university and have a complete degree. They're allowed often because now the suitors, as I'll call them, the boys that want to marry them, want a girl who's got a degree. She'll probably never use that. She'll probably never work in that environment, but they would like an educated girl. Um, incidentally, who has to be a virgin because there are tests that they will make them carry out to make sure that they are virgins. But the uh, whole what happens? What happens? Sorry for interrupting. What happens if they're not a virgin? What happens to a girl well, in that situation? Well, that's where the attempted killings. Well, the attempted wow. killings could come into place. They'll be sent back to their parents. The parents will then want to kill them. But it's not always an honor killing. Is not always carried out by the parents. It could be the in-laws that do it. So there's a risk of that. The brothers, the cousins, you know whole load of family members, the community, they all sort of jump on the ju- uh, on the bandwagon to do that because they believe so strongly in maintaining this honour within the community as well. But the other things that people can do is they can ask a question, which, you know, it seems so obvious, but people don't ask because often it's an uncomfortable conversation they don't want to have. But if they were to ask that conversation, you know, mm. ask and start a conversation, that adult or child or young woman or teenager may feel a little bit of comfort in that person. And you know what? If you don't want to get involved, that's fine to make a discreet phone call to... Sometimes people are afraid. They're afraid to intervene for fear of appearing ignorant to, an, to another culture, I suppose. You know what I mean? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, that, that comes with it. And there is a stigma and, and sort of like um, maybe a retaliation from that person that might sort of 
say don't get involved and you know they don't want that which I understand I mean, I remember, I'm going to give you a, a story. I, I remember I was away on holidays one year and I saw this guy and there was like three or four women walking behind him and it was 110 degrees and he was in his shorts and his sunglasses and three or four women behind him were covered from head to toe. And it made me so angry. Now, I know those women choose to do that and that's fine because that's part of their culture. But it still made me so angry that I would love to have gone over and this may be sound really wrong and shake them and say, why are you doing this? You know, why are you yeah. behaving like this for this man? He doesn't care, clearly. You know, so why he lives his normal life. He has his shorts and his sunglasses and T-shirt on, and yet he's demanding, or that culture demands, that you remain covered up. I, and it makes yeah. you feel so angry. And that's the point I'm making, is that maybe people, like I wouldn't have obviously gone over and said anything because I wouldn't intervene in somebody else's culture. That's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. But I just, I find it so unfair and so wrong. You see, the issue we have as well, that a lot of the... Um, religious institutes are run by people who believe in maintaining this cultural belief system. So a lot of the religions don't emphasize that people have to live a certain way, but the culture does. Mm -hmm. So people often get very confused, confused between the two, the two culture yeah. and religion because the people that are preaching at the um, religious institutes are preaching about you should do this and you should do that, even though it's got nothing to do with the religion. Um, and that causes a, a huge rift, I think, with people understanding the depth of what a religion actually is. But, but yes, I, I understand what you're saying. It's frustrating. Because Does that make you angry you when you see that? When you see that kind of the way the difference between men and women are treated within a culture? Does that does that make you? Angry? I don't get angry. I'm not an angry person, mm. but I, I I feel sad. I feel sad if mm. I'm being honest because I yeah I feel there's such an injustice that once a girl's born, she hasn't got a chance, and I know that. You know, she has to fight twice as hard. It's like me saying, when I go into a boardroom and I want to network with somebody, I have to work twice as hard because I am a woman. And, you know, I haven't got the long legs and blonde hair, unfortunately, so I have to work twice as hard because mm -hmm. of that. And even though I love myself, a lot of people don't because they think I've got a big mouth and I'm not the person. They don't want to have this conversation with me now. So it's difficult. So, yeah, I, I feel sad for people that, are in my situation because they're living my old life and I'm free and I mm -hmm. want that freedom for them and I, I sometimes get frustrated is the right word Yeah. when I can't do enough quick enough yeah I think we're all frustrated sometimes the world around us sometimes the way we see the way people are treated in general within different cultures um, and I'm looking here is there is there much grief from mothers after an honour killing I mean or is the honour more powerful than the love of the child Mothers are often involved. You know, there was a case, there's a couple of cases in the UK where um, somebody actually contacted my non-profit to say that she, he watched, it was, a, it was a young boy, watched his mother and father kill his sister. And he was very young at the time and he didn't know what to do. And, you know, he was really struggling and we've helped him through our non-profit. We do mm. free coaching calls um, for survivors and victims and I don't I don't say no to men because in my opinion you know although we're a non-profit primarily for women if somebody's struggling or suffering out there why would I turn them away I wouldn't do that yeah and he was really struggling because he'd watched this and it, he felt that huge amount of guilt and guilt really plays heavy it really weighs you down so women are part of the problem because they maintain this cultural belief system my own mother included 
You know, but man, but men are the main problem here because these brothers, these sons, these younger men who are now growing yeah. up in a different world, they should be able to step in and say, this has to stop. You know, because... I'm hoping... Yeah, I'm hoping... Sorry, sorry, Niall. I'm hoping with my videos that I'm evoking some compassion within the younger generation. And I think that's the key. I don't think me... I'm here to help women. I'm here to... I've even had survivor calls today, you know. I've had a victim call today that I've been taking... And I'm here for them, but I'm more interested in getting through to the younger generation, the, the male perspective, so that I've had women come forward and say that their husbands have realized by watching my videos that they've treated them badly because they've had an arranged marriage and that the girl really wasn't at fault. So they've yeah. changed their attitudes and they've, they've apologized, which is huge because yeah. to get an apology off anybody nowadays is very difficult. Difficult enough, yeah, yeah. Um, Super difficult. So, no, the thing is, if we can change the, the mindset of a younger man and get him to understand that, you know, women and women and men are actually equals, and if you've got a sister, you should treat her as nicely as you do your own brother, then, you know, that that's a start, isn't it? And I think by me being as honest and vulnerable as I have been in my videos, which are, for the viewers, if they do watch them, there is a trigger warning, because although it would upset you, I come forward with nothing but a raw and um i suppose unfiltered version of my experiences as i lived them because that's how life is life doesn't give you a warning it doesn't before someone hits you they don't say i'm about to hit you they just do it and life like that sometimes it comes at us really hard and it's important to have those conversations for change. And I think the world is changing too. And sadly, some cultures, I mean, obviously parts of cultures can always remain. People should always try and keep their identity and their culture. But some parts of cultures just don't fit into Western society anymore and the way that we live and the way we respect and each other as men and women. But look, if people want to listen to your podcast, what's, what is the name of the podcast? Sorry, Nina. I do apologize. So I, so I recorded, I've recorded over, I've been a guest on over 100 podcasts, but... On my YouTube, it's called London's Life Coach because that's my um, name. It's who I'm known as. Okay, London's Life Coach. You can see a lot of those videos. London's Life Coach, yeah, with the S. Um, you can find a lot of the podcasts on there. Or if they just Google my name into mm. anywhere. If you, by the way, me. if people want to spell your name in case they want to put it in, <laughs> it's Nina A O U I I L K. That's A O U I L K, pronounced Oak. Yeah. Okay, if you it want, is, yeah. if you do want to go there, uh, Nina, you are an inspiration, and I know you help a lot of other people now uh, to try and deal with that. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether it's re-traumatizing to have to keep telling your story over and over again because I'm sure you remember little bits or different bits each time that might kind of come back to you. So maybe it is re-traumatizing to try and tell your story over and over again. So I do thank you for that. But I think if one person listening, you know, kind of today from that culture or tonight from that culture is listening and thinks, God, I am treating my, my, my wife badly or I shouldn't have been married to this woman because, you know, I don't deserve her or whatever it happens to be. Well, then we've made a difference, you know. So no, Niall, thank you so much for pointing that out as well because it is a, it's very difficult because I've literally been going back and forth, back and forth. And every time I do go back, I try and bring that raw version of how I felt at that time, those emotions. Yeah. so that people can resonate with them. So yeah. I really do appreciate you, um, you know, raising that. But as you said, it's extremely important. You know, I've had messages coming through from young men from a recent podcast I did saying that they, um, he was about to commit suicide until he had the podcast. And I gave him hope 
So people take yeah. a message, whichever message they want to take from it. But the main thing is I'm spreading awareness and I'm giving those girls and women out there who think they've got nobody, that they're all alone. Um, hopefully I'm giving them somebody that they, they believe in, that they can trust. And I want to be there for them. Okay, well, look, again, if you want to go onto YouTube or do a quick search, it's London Life Coach, or indeed, you can search for London. Nina. Your, you, sorry, I do apologize. You can search for Nina's name, <laughs> and that's Nina, A-O-U-I-L-K. Nina, listen, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed, and I appreciate you coming on the air, and I appreciate your honesty as well. Now, now. real people, real opinions. Nighttime Talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio.